This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Thursday, May 27th. I'm Matt Hoish. In today's headlines, local businesses face worker shortage, county discusses wildfire evacuation plans, Telluride Historical Museum dives into disease, and a mountain weather forecast. Alex Castagneto has some strong words about trying to hire employees right now. It's an absolute nightmare, to be honest with you. Castagneto is the owner, operator, and executive chef of the Goods Hospitality Group, which owns Los Buenos Tacos and does catering. Pretty much five out of every six interviews don't even show up for the interview. He isn't the only one. Megan Osala owns and operates The Butcher and the Baker and is the president of the Telluride and Mountain Village Bar and Restaurant Association. You know, this I think will be our 12th summer uh, in business, and this is definitely the hardest I've ever had to look for staff. Businesses across the country have reported similar struggles to find workers. Experts have theorized the shortage is in part due to higher unemployment benefits and a continued reluctance to go to work during the pandemic. But most of the local business owners and managers KOTO spoke with also point to another cause people in the Telluride region know well. It's housing. We don't have enough people who have housing here. Housing is always the number one issue. Edward Bills is the general manager at the Hotel Columbia. He says hiring has been a challenge. They're getting fewer applicants, and most of the ones they do get don't have housing yet. If there was any sort of surplus in employee-level housing, I think we'd be having a much different story right now. Osala says at least four of her staff have lost housing. Because the condo they were living in sold, or the person who owned it suddenly wanted to spend more time in Telluride than they you know, maybe had before because of whatever's happening in their life. Being short-staffed, she explains, is forcing Butcher and the Baker to simplify their menu to items that require less prep. And she anticipates the shortage will also impact service at other businesses in the region. When you don't have enough servers or enough people in the kitchen to prepare the food quickly enough, you know, it affects all kinds of things. The perception of the guest trying to get the point across that, you know, the reason their food costs more or the reason they might be asked to tip the kitchen or the reason their food is taking twice as long as it normally would. Dan Lynch is co-owner of Brown Dog Pizza. They're opening up for the summer season later this week. But for now, because they're short-staffed, he says they'll only be doing takeout. We can run our operation pretty efficiently without the dine-in, but once we add the dine-in, we double our workforce. Not everyone is struggling as much. Lynn Moore owns Hook Telluride and says she hasn't had a hiring issue, which she attributes to the wages she pays. Mountain Village is good to go with staffing for gondola operations. That's according to Jamie Holmes, Human Resources Director for the town. But by and large, the region is preparing for a staffing shortage this summer. There will be a labor crunch, but I think we've acknowledged that. Anton Benitez is the president and CEO of the Telluride Mountain Village Owners Association. Another trend, he adds, could compound that challenge. I think a lot of people uh, this summer are wanting to get out, enjoy themselves, be out in the open. So it's, it's possible we could have uh, more guests here than in a typical summer. So that'll be interesting to see. Summer is coming. The question is, are the workers? It's a worst-case scenario no one wants to think about, 
but local governments need to be prepared for. A wildfire evacuation. This week, the San Miguel County Board of Commissioners discussed local evacuation plans with officials from local fire and peacekeeping teams. Jennifer Dinsmore, Emergency Management Coordinator for the Sheriff's Office, began with an overview of the county's evacuation planning guide. And we call it a guide because plans are hard to stick to, especially in fast-moving situations like a wildfire. Case-by-case flexibility, Dinsmore stresses, will be key for the unified command team making decisions. Every fire is going to be different. Every decision may need to be different depending on the situation. But evacuations are obviously going to address what areas are affected, how do they get out, traffic control, what type of facility is needed for the population to be evacuated. There will be different needs among the population in an evacuation, Dinsmore explains. Some will need to go to a shelter, some may have access to private accommodations, and others may just need to go to a reception space to get out of a dangerous area. The county has three spots that can serve as American Red Cross shelters, the Telluride High School, Norwood School, and Wilkinson Public Library. They're also trying to onboard the Norwood Library as another official Red Cross shelter. What that gives us is the Red Cross comes in to manage it, We have a Red Red Cross liaison on staff here, and and they would be able to go and get it opened at first until such a time that Red Cross personnel, too, could arrive, and they may need to keep it open for, you know, several operational periods. There can also be temporary shelters at Telluride Town Park, the Telluride Airport, the Norwood Library, the Norwood Community Center, Norwood Fairgrounds, and the Mountain Village Conference Center. These are temporary places where people can... um, If it's a short amount of time, obviously they can check in and have a safe place to go until the hazard passes. When it comes to emergency communications, Dinsmore explains the county's code red system can send alerts to landlines and cell phones, Facebook alerts can reach about 75,000 people, and door-to-door alerts could also be an option. But Sheriff Bill Masters says he has concerns when it comes to the local communication systems, which, on normal days, he notes, are already stressed. We note that people live stream disasters as well. The first thing they want to do is take a video of it and live stream it onto Facebook as it's happening. And when you have a thousand people trying to do that, taking pictures of a fire, where probably our communications will be overloaded and Code Red may not work. Narrow mountain roads are another concern for masters. A single accident can close our roads for hours upon hours. And during a panic-fueled evacuation, there's bound to be accidents. And we're going to have extreme gridlock. We have gridlock every morning in front of my house. So all those plans are going to be very difficult to implement because of the um, we're fighting the uh, topography and our road conditions. Given the need for flexibility and preparedness, Telluride Fire Protection District Chief John Bennett stresses a lot comes down to individual residents. And knowing what their surroundings look like and knowing what the options are and being able to follow direction when given. It's a sobering but important conversation to have, especially in preparation for what state officials anticipate will be another intense year of wildfires. One of the first things Teresa Kanishnek tells me is we're in an old hospital. 
So this was the Miners Hospital that was built in the 1890s, late 1890s, and functioned as a hospital up until the 1960s. It feels fitting. We're in the Telluride Historical Museum, and Kanishnek, who's the director of programs and exhibits, is giving me a sneak peek at the museum's upcoming exhibition. The new exhibit is titled Outbreak, Epidemics in a Connected World. It's a collaboration combining displays from the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History on disease, epidemiology, and epidemics, and local research from the Historical Museum. The last international pandemic we had, um, no one has a living memory of. So 1918 was the influenza pandemic, and it's a really great opportunity to connect science and history and give people like some confidence to understand how it happens and what we can do to f contain disease today. The exhibit begins with a blunt historical truth. Until the 20th century, infectious disease was the leading cause of death in the U.S. Pictures of some local residents who died of disease and are buried in the Lone Tree Cemetery hang on the wall. The cemetery is my favorite place and I love giving cemetery tours, but you see a lot of very small young children buried there. About 15% of children, and we think actually more than that, who were born in Telluride did not survive past their fifth birthday. One of the main thrusts of the exhibit is how much advances in science have reduced our vulnerability to diseases. But on the flip side, we also still use a surprising number of the same tools we did a century ago, particularly quarantining. In the corner of the exhibition space is a recreation of a quarantine cabin from historic Telluride. And that was an actual section out towards Butcher Creek that we had various buildings in throughout the years. And people would go there when they were sick to contain that disease and hope that it wouldn't spread throughout town. Inside the cabin is a timeline of disease history in the area starting in the 1860s when white people started settling the region. They brought in a lot of disease to the native population. And while we couldn't talk about that in depth, it is really important to realize that immunity was different for each cultural group. And then we go through the years kind of showing, well, here's an outbreak in 1889. Here's another one in 1902. Oh, wow. Between 1902 and 1918, people got sick a lot in Telluride. There are deep dives on multiple sections of the timeline in other parts of the exhibit, including the 1918 pandemic. One in ten Telluridians died of the Spanish flu. We didn't do great. The museum also collaborated with the Pinhead Institute to generate 3D printed models of the pathogens examined in the exhibit at a scale of one to one million, including tuberculosis, scarlet fever, Ebola, and Zika. But the most startling part of the experience comes at the end. Oh, wow. So then we have the free box mural. Hanging on the wall are sections of the first COVID free box mural that will stick out in the minds of anyone who was in Telluride in the early months of the pandemic. A cowboy spraying a COVID virus. I think that was a moment for a lot of people when we realized, oh, life is changing. Because the free box is such an iconic Telluride tradition that when that got boarded up, it was scary. It was kind of like, no, this is real. It's a distinct marker of a specific time and place. Part of the mural is spray painted over with a stencil of George Floyd. To the left is a display case 
with empty boxes that held doses of Moderna and Johnson & Johnson vaccines that were used in San Miguel County. Kanishnek says they're also adding a panel about the countywide antibody testing last spring. The whole COVID-19 section is a jarring time warp archive of the last year and a half in San Miguel County. Things are changing, like as I print, the, you know, I printed these last week, and now our mask mandate is gone. Yeah, this is truly just showing that we're in the process of a very historical event. Outbreak, Epidemics in a Connected World, will open on Thursday, June 3rd, and be on display at the Telluride Historical Museum until April 2022. History buffs may also have reason to go more than once. The COVID-19 pandemic isn't over, and Kanishnek admits they might have to update some sections as history unfolds day by day. Snow is melting, and that means passes are opening. Last Dollar Pass and Ofer Pass are now open, but Imogene Pass and Black Bear Pass remain closed. Roller skating is once again popping up in Norwood. The second Maverink event will take place this Saturday and Sunday at the Norwood Fairgrounds from noon to 10 p.m. Skates will be provided free of charge. There will also be music and locally sourced tacos. The Colorado Department of Transportation will begin restriping work throughout southwestern and south-central Colorado on Monday, June 7th. Work will take place on U.S. 160, U.S. 491, Colorado 145, U.S. 550, U.S. 24, U.S. 50, U.S. 285, and Colorado 291. General working hours will be Monday through Friday from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m., with occasional single-lane restrictions. The restriping is slated to finish around late August. More information is available at co.gov. Is it possible to know how your state representative will vote on a bill before it gets debated? What started off as a casual bet between two reporters has shed light on a little-known tool that can pretty accurately predict such outcomes. Our State House reporter Scott Franz and KUNC investigative reporter Michael DeYoanna put power mapping to test on five recent bills. So, Scott, as journalists, we're always gauging the support and opposition for issues. Michael, what are your methods for doing that? Good old gumshoe reporting, you know, asking people in the know and a bit of experience on reading which way the political winds might be blowing. But I also keep an open mind about things. Mine are similar, but I've also added a new kind of computer data analysis that can predict the fate of a bill. I'm pretty sure I can tell you who will vote for it and against it. And this is where our bet comes into play. Right. Before we get to who was right. Me or you. You mean me or your computer. <laughs> Let's go to where it all began. It was a hearing of the Senate Agriculture and Natural Resources Committee that you were covering on April 15th. At this time, we have a um, witness list of around 40 people. 40? 40. That's Carrie Donovan. She leads the four-member committee, and the bill is titled Ski Area Safety Plans and Accident Reporting. Senator Danielson, please. 
Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, fellow members of the Ag Committee. Jesse Danielson is a committee member and a co-sponsor of the bill. Today we're going to hear from a lot of families who have been impacted by injury or death on the ski slopes. The bill would require ski resorts to publish public data about all their injuries and fatalities, as well as create safety plans that consumers can review. And that's what got my attention. Before I started covering the Capitol, I was a print reporter in Steamboat Springs. I actually sat next to the police scanner, and quite often I could hear the paramedics talking as they treated injuries on the slopes. But it isn't easy to get detailed information or to learn about the trends. Exactly. Several reporters have tried this over the years. Including you. Back in 2019, I found more than 5,600 emergency room visits in a single year for ski and snowboard incidents. But I was only able to connect a few of the numbers to specific resorts. Those were the falls and other injuries involving chairlifts. And I had to file a Colorado Open Records Act request to get that slice of the information. You shouldn't have to be a journalist with a CORA request and a lot of money to figure out what's going on. As a skier, I can say, if there's a simple, straightforward way to collect the data and require the ski resorts to produce safety plans that's public and transparent, we should do so. But there was a lot of pushback from the ski industry to Danielson's bill. For instance, Melanie Mills, uh, she's the president and CEO of the Trade Association, Colorado Ski Country USA. They represent 22 ski areas. Senate Bill 184 is a terrible solution to a non-existent problem. She argued that a national group representing the industry already tabulates injury and fatality numbers in a comprehensive way once a decade. But this is aggregated data, and it's not the granular resort-specific information that supporters are asking to be made public. The ski industry is interested in careful analysis of data and meaningful scientific conclusions that can be used to improve safety and help educate guests. Not in soundbite pieces of raw data that can be taken out of context, used to sell a particular narrative, scare people, provide voyeuristic information, and tabloidize the topic of ski safety. I'm feeling like this is a really good point to let people know more about our wager. With people discussing their accidents, as well as some experts who testified about how data can make industries more accountable and safer, I thought the bill had a chance of getting out of the committee. But through power mapping, I predicted it would fail. In essence, it measures how likely lawmakers are to support or oppose a bill based on the money they get from groups lobbying on a particular issue. Organizations have been forever kind of looking at who are the players, uh, who are the decision makers. That's the lead designer of the power mapping tool. His name is Greg Schneider. Who is influencing them? Which ones are on our side? Which ones are not on our side? Which ones are potentially persuadable? The practice of power mapping is just kind of putting that in a visual representation. Schneider is the Innovation and Products Director at the Institute on Money and Politics in Helena, Montana. He says there are a couple of key ingredients to power mapping. Obviously, one of them is who is lobbying for or against a bill. And under state law, lobbyists must declare their position, or even if they are just monitoring a bill. And the other ingredient is to plug that information into the power mapping tool. It's worth noting that campaign contributions to Colorado lawmakers aren't that big. There are limits, $200 in the primary and 200 in the general election from a group. 
That's according to the Secretary of State's office, which oversees elections. Michael, it doesn't sound like a lot, but Schneider says even amounts in this range matter. It's an indicator for those of us looking at the political system that there is uh, some similarity in ideology somewhere between these organizations. And that reveals something at the Capitol people might otherwise miss, like how important the relationships between campaign givers and the lawmakers can be. So I asked you to walk me through this power mapping you did for the ski bill. We first have to sift through the long list of groups lobbying for and against it. Like the Colorado Association of Realtors, which is opposed. So we hopped onto Zoom and I read the groups to you. And I entered them into the system. Colorado Ski Country. Colorado Ski Country as opposed, yeah. Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce. They're opposed? Yep. Wow, they're a big 2.1 million. Oh man, this is going to knock everyone way over. And we keep going like that. Children's Hospital Colorado is four. Vail Resorts opposed. And finally, that's it. With all the information in, it brings us back to our bet. And to Senator Jesse Danielson, who after hours of debate, finally calls for a vote. Thank you, Madam Chair. I move Senate Bill 184 to the Committee of the Whole. That is a proper motion. Um, will you please take the roll? Wait, 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 wait. Stop the tape. I want to tell people what my prediction was first. You not only said uh, you could predict the outcome, but you also said you could predict who would vote for and against it. I said it would fail four to one and Danielson would be the only one to vote for it. Senator Corum? No. Senator Fields? No. Senator Sonnenberg? No. Senator Danielson? Yes. You called it exactly, Scott. And there's this big takeaway. Groups opposing the bill had given $5.7 million to campaigns, while supporters came in at just 302000 So let's be clear, that's not money that went directly to fight or support the bill. And all of it did not go directly to the lawmakers voting on this bill. Remember the limits to giving that we mentioned earlier. Right. It's an overall amount, and it's a reflection of power in the form of money given to all lawmakers. But there's this question. Did campaign contributions influence votes on this specific bill? Absolutely not. Not in the slightest. That's two of the senators on the committee who voted no on the bill. Jerry Sonnenberg, an Eastern Plains Republican, and Democrat Carrie Donovan, whose district includes ski resorts. I don't think anyone can deny that the ski industry is a huge driver of our Colorado economy. The power mapping tool shows that Donovan received $1,000 in campaign contributions from ski interests over the years in running for office, including Vail Resorts and Colorado Ski Country USA, and another $400 from the Colorado Association of Realtors. But she told us the contributions didn't affect her vote or any of her other votes during the legislative session. I remember that Vail Resorts gave me a check because I was really proud to have the support of my hometown. But I don't know beyond that if I could tell you who I have and haven't received Um, support of my campaign from. This makes me think about what Greg Schneider was saying earlier. He said donations have been given for a purpose. And as you said, Scott, the tool reminds us how important donations can be to lawmakers in a general sense. So the purpose, according to lawmakers we spoke to, 
is that organizations use money to say they support a candidate. Here's Jerry Sonnenberg. I think uh, when, when people are writing campaign checks, they write checks to people that may have a similar philosophy of theirs. Records show that Sonnenberg received $1,600 from Vail Resorts in Colorado Ski Country, USA, and another $4,100 from the Colorado Association of Realtors in his time running for office. So that they uh, would anticipate that if something came up, because you can imagine four years ago or whenever it was, when they were writing checks, they didn't know this bill was coming. And to that point, there's another interesting detail we found. Senator Jesse Danielson also received money from the Colorado Association of Realtors, $1,100. And they were opposing the ski safety bill that she was trying to get passed. So we asked her the same questions. Do campaign contributions influence her decisions on specific pieces of legislation? They wanted to fund my election campaign. And then on this measure, they opposed my bill. And that's not uncommon. And obviously, I... I stood for my values. So a big looming question is, in what light do we look at this power mapping? Because these senators are telling us campaign contributions don't predict what they will support. And that's exactly what Greg Schneider, the power mapping co-designer, expected would happen. I think most of them will bristle pretty heavily at the concept that money influences their decision making. Corporations donate, he says, because they believe they'll have some kind of sway in what becomes law and what doesn't. He also said that power mapping works best when it looks at the big picture. We put that to the test with other bills in the state legislature. Including one letting school boards and cities withhold information about the finalists they are considering for their top jobs. And one on big building efficiency. And two from 2019, the so-called red flag gun control bill and the fight over oil and gas local control. In all, we mapped five bills. And it correctly predicted the outcome of four of them. It didn't work on the oil and gas bill. There were many amendments to that bill, and it changed so significantly that it was difficult to track the support and opposition over time. Schneider told us that there are going to be cases where the power map doesn't predict what will happen. But he did reference a couple of studies that say, in general, this kind of tool is predictive, not only in Colorado, but in state houses across the country. And when it comes to lawmakers... I do think there is generally the ability to draw some correlation between the types of money that you give and the types of decisions that you make. So, Scott, the next time a bill I'm watching comes up, it might be worth taking a little time to power map it. I think so, and I'm willing to bet that it will predict the outcome. I'm Scott Franz at the State Capitol. And I'm Michael DeOanna. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for mostly clear skies tonight with a low in the mid-30s. Friday, cloudy with a high near 70 and a chance of showers and thunderstorms in the afternoon. And Friday night, mostly clear with a low in the mid-30s. Saturday, mostly sunny with a high near 70 and a chance of showers and thunderstorms in the afternoon. And Saturday night, mostly cloudy with a low around 40. This has been the news for Thursday, May 27th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 728-3206.